going to read uh, the scripture as we go through um, the, the text this morning, through the message of this morning. <clears throat> now, this is about the mercy of God. And there's a verse from, from the book of Daniel where he says, The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. Mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God is in the business of mercy. It's not a sideshow for him. It's not something he does on his spare time when he can get around to it. It is the center of what he does to give us mercy. Now, for a little bit of context, when you we're in the ninth chapter of Romans, so for, for the last eight chapters, the, the literal first half of the book, this book is 16 chapters long, Paul has been expressing with great depth how much God has loved us, but in order to understand the depth of the love, we had to recognize the depth of our problem collectively as humanity, how messed up we are. But then more than that, to take it down to each part of our lives. While I am not responsible for all the wars and destruction and pestilence caused by mankind on the face of the earth, I have participated in it in some way, personally, individually. And I need to come to that place where I recognize that. And I know that I am in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And Paul's been expressing that through these chapters until he gets to the culmination of the very literal heart of this message. And that is the power and the depth of the love of God for us. The ninth chapter now is a transition. And for the next three chapters, he's going to focus on his own people. Remember that Paul himself was a Jew. And do you remember Paul's story? If you go to the book of Acts around the, the ninth chapter, you'll read about a, a man named Saul that was persecuting the church. And his name was first mentioned on the tail end of a story about a guy named Stephen who was put to death in the streets of Jerusalem by being stoned to death, throwing big rocks at him, hitting him as hard as they can until he died. And the reason they did that was because he was a follower of Jesus. Paul was there. His name is also Saul, Saul simply being his Hebrew name. Paul being the Greek name, same name, different language, different culture. But the Bible tells us there at the end of that story about the stoning of Stephen, that Paul was there giving approval to what was going on. And then sometime later, he went even further. He's standing there nodding his head. He's a Pharisee. Remember how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees? How they interacted with him quite often like this, you know? And yet, Paul felt that was his duty to God to uphold the law of Moses to the letter. And anyone who isn't is in big trouble, and we're going to make sure they get in big trouble because that's their job. They're, they're leaders of God's people, so they have to be 
they have to stay on the, on the straight and narrow. And if any other teaching comes along that is false, then we have to stop it. And he thought, as many did, that this belief that Jesus was the Messiah was a false teaching from a false teacher. And it was heresy in their minds that they would say that Jesus is the Messiah and that he rose from the dead. So Paul made it his life's mission to stop the church, to stop Christians, to put them to death even. And he did that. He did that effectively. He did that passionately. This was a man that would not let the grass grow under his feet. He kept moving. He kept going. There's always something. He had lots of irons in the fire, a type A personality. We know people like that in our lives. Maybe some of you are like that. You just boom, 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 boom. That was Paul. Until he's on the road to Damascus to do more of this persecuting and a light blinds him and a voice comes with the light and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that was his turning point. Sometimes people use that phrase, Damascus Road experience, to describe a, a dramatic turnaround in their life. Well, that was true, and yet it wasn't as if it was instantaneous. Now, that was a starting point, a very important starting point, without which he never would have made this dramatic transformation. But for the next few years, and I mean years, Paul went off by himself, and he studied the scriptures that he knew, and he listened to other people who were followers of Jesus. But I think more than that, and this brings us back to mercy now, he had to understand the depth of the love, the forgiveness, and the mercy of God for himself. He had to embrace that. And in order to do that, he had to own his own failures. He had to admit his own sins. Now, what was that like? To be alone with your mistakes to be alone and consider, wow, the damage I've done. Have you ever gotten to those moments in your life where you realize you've made a huge mistake and you've hurt somebody in some form or the other? It's like, oh, and you don't make an excuse for it. You don't rationalize it. You just, you just own it. Wow, isn't that, doesn't that feel indescribably painful? That's where Paul was. And he had to get there to experience the mercy of God so he could show that same mercy to others and preach and teach about it. And that's the first thing I want to say about mercy today. This comes from the first five verses of, the, of chapter 9. So let's read that and we'll come back to that point on the screen. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. 
You know what Paul didn't do? He had this, this, this transformative experience where he was like this against the church, against Christ. He flips it around completely. Now he's their number one advocate. What he didn't do was look down upon the people who were still over in this camp here. He didn't look back on his, his pharisaical friends and say, oh, I know better than you. What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> You're going to hell. Go ahead. And that wasn't his attitude. He's torn inside. Because the mercy of God, the depth of the mercy of God in the Apostle Paul gave him no choice but to feel mercy toward his own people who had not yet had the scales fall from their eyes. If you remember that part of the story, he was blind from that Damascus Road light for three days until... Ananias came to him and the scales came from his eyes. And it's, it's a great metaphor for, for awakening, to, to, to seeing the light. And he did. But as much as he tried to reach his own people, most of them rejected the message, rejected him. And quite often, his old friends, his Pharisee buddies, were trying to put him to death now. We're rejecting him and wanted to stop him because now he's one of the enemy in their minds. So Paul understood and carried out the mercy of God. The mercy of God in the children of God. That's what one of the aspects of mercy we have to embrace. That's the story I just demonstrated there with the children in a, in a fun kind of way. But, and and if, if you read that parable, it really was that way. Like when Jesus uses parables, quite often he speaks in hyperbole. He, he exaggerates extremely. So you know this can't really literally happen. And yet, there's a story there that we need to hear. There, there's, a, there's a lesson in the story that, that can grab us. So, so if, if, if um, now why, how could a man owe anybody trillions of dollars and especially have it all be gone and not be able to pay it back? I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Of course, that's not going to happen. And even more ridiculous, why would anybody forgive him of that debt? That's pretty ridiculous, too. And that's, that's how Paul saw himself. Why would God forgive me after fighting against him so greatly and now I'm forgiven? And then in that parable, that forgiven servant goes out and rather than extending mercy, great as it was to him, when he just needed a little bit of mercy by comparison for his friend, and he didn't. This is why we say this prayer. I'm so glad the kids knew that line. Wasn't it good? That's why we say it every week. Repetition is a teacher. And, and those words sink in. Lord, forgive me... No, we don't stop there. As I forgive others, it's a flow through experience. So the mercy of God in the children of God, Paul demonstrated that. And now down to the sixth verse, it's a nine, it says, it is as though God's word had, it, excuse me, it is not as though God's word had failed. 
For not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not by it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. This chapter is, as many other chapters were, um, is very deep, and we could spend a lot of time on, on each paragraph, really. But let me just touch briefly on this, how Paul is expressing that it's not about what I have inherited because my bloodline. Like, I'm automatically in God's good favor because of my genetics. That's not it. I'm born into this. Therefore, I get God's mercy. And the problem with that idea is this. If I inherit something because of my bloodline, then God owes me something. Then God is obligated to give me that because... Well, I'm born. You just have to do it. You have to forgive me. You have to show mercy to me. And that's not what this is based upon. Although the the Jewish nation was, was called by God from the start, the original father, Abraham, when he was called by God, if you go to Genesis 12, you can read about that. From the start, God said this to him, you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to your own people and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples, all nations without exception. That was the call of Abraham. That was what the Jewish nation was supposed to be about was to Share the wealth from God. The wealth of blessing, the wealth of understanding Him. And at times they did. But more often than not, they did what most humans do, what most nations do. They closed the borders and it's just us and we're right and everybody out there is wrong and they close off. And the kingdom of God gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then Jesus comes and expands the kingdom and talks about a bigger kingdom. And so this is why he makes this distinction there in the eighth verse that it's not, we're not children of God because of descent. We are children of God because of promise. A promise given to Abraham that carried through and was completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which opens it up for everybody. That was a message for a church divided between Jew and Gentile. That's a message for people today, divided for any reason, to think that we have the upper hand, that, that we have greater rights to something. That's not what it's about. Paul uses a lot of different words to describe how God does dispense his mercy. So if it's not based on inheritance, then what is it? 
Well, it, it is adoption. That's a good word. If you're adopted, you are not part of the bloodline of the home that you grow up in, but you are part of the love line. And that's more important, isn't it? Because you can be born into a home, and that home can be a place where love is absent. And too often that happens, or love is so broken that it can be a very difficult and tumultuous life. But when we are loved, and the basis of the, of the connection and the relationship is, is love, not the bloodline, that's what God has promised to us. We are children of God because of the promise of God that he will never leave us or forsake us. Grafted in is another term he uses to describe how mercy comes to us. Jesus used the metaphor about, I am the vine, you are the branches. And Paul is picking up on that when he talks in the 11th chapter about um, being grafted in into a tree to grow. And so we were apart, now we're together. Um, Election is another one. You have been appointed to be recipients. Not that you don't have a choice in the matter, but the fact that you have a choice at all is evidence of election. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, Chosen by God. We're chosen. Like, we matter to God. In other words, I have a role to play. The same with called. I have, there, there's something that, that only I can do. And we don't look at that boastfully or arrogantly, but um, for the last almost 25 years, 24 years, this fall, I go back to a day when I was sitting with a friend for breakfast. And he was asking me um, how the job search was going. At that point, I was working at the Presbyterian Church, and that time was winding down, I needed to get another job, so... And I found an opening at a Christian camp in western Pennsylvania. And I had a phone call with the director of that camp. And he saw my resume and he was excited. And I said, you know, this looks pretty good. I'd like to bring you out here for an interview. And he said, okay. And I'm excited. I always love camping ministry. And I said, yes, this is it. This is where I need to be. But there was something else in my heart. Something about here in this community how there's no church in Bushkill, God. Maybe I should do that. And if you know more of the story, Linda was there way before me, okay? (laughs) But she didn't push me there. She waited patiently. And as I was talking with my friend about this, I said, you know what? I, I I think I'm gonna... I think we're going to plant the church. I think we're going to step out in faith and say, let's start a church. And I said, that camping ministry job was always my dream job. Um, But you know what? I'll bet there's lots of people that can do that job and will do it well. Maybe, and probably better than I would. But right now, who else is going to start a church up here in Bushkill? Here we are, called, chosen. 
That was my role, and Linda's too. And many of you have joined in on that calling and been participated in that. This is what God does in our lives. He, he calls us. He chooses us. And so whatever of those words is most helpful to you to describe your privilege that you've been given to be a recipient of the mercy of God and all that that means for you. And then also, down at the 10th verse, mercy is initiated by God's choice, not by our actions. The 10th verse says this, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time as our father Isaac, by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here, too, there's a lot more we could say. Um, now, in the previous chapter, excuse me, paragraph talked about Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah had a son named Isaac. So Isaac, when he grew, him and his wife, Rebecca, were also unable to have children for a time, but eventually they were blessed with having a child, but it wasn't just one, it was two. There was twin boys within her womb, and these boys were wrestling with each other inside the womb, the Bible tells us. And God told Rebecca that the second born is supposed to get the blessing or the inheritance and that is reversal of what normally happens. But there was a reason for it. And that's why he did that. For the purpose of election. Now there's a part of, of Christianity that, that teaches that election means there's a set of people throughout all of history that have been elected to be believers in Jesus Christ. And there's a set of people who are elected not to be. And you really ultimately have no choice about it because God is sovereign and it's up to him. Now your experience, you might think you're, you're, you're choosing and you kind of have to, but really at the end of the day, it's up to him, not you. Now I don't believe that, and that's an age-old debate, but they'll take verses like this and say, see, here's election. Well, I call election this, or I describe it this way. Election is more a statement about God than about us. He chose to bless us with mercy apart from behavior or inheritance. In other words, his mercy isn't about inheritance. It isn't about how good or bad I am. It is about the fact that he chose to love us and offer to us, offer the opportunity to come to him through Jesus. Now, I still have a say. I still have a choice. I still need to respond. And that's where my friends who think about election being God just chose this, you know, and that, that's all called Calvinism, and you can look that up if you're interested, okay? I don't believe that, all right? He chose to bless us with mercy. What are you going to do with that mercy? I mentioned a moment ago the depth of Paul's pain in facing his own decisions facing his own actions, facing the, the, the jailing of people who love Jesus, the torture, the, even some put to death, facing that and wearing that. 
That is, by the way, I think one of the biggest reasons, perhaps the biggest reason, why many people never turn to God. Because somewhere deep inside they know if I turn to God and I do it completely, I have to face what I've done. And that's going to hurt. You might even call it hell. To go through, I'm not saying it's the only description of hell, okay, the only definition, but to, to admit to yourself that you're wrong, to admit to God you're wrong, and then, in as much as it's possible, perhaps, hopefully, make amends for it. Ask forgiveness and go to those people, and that's a, that's a long, hard road. And so it's a whole lot easier to make all the rationalizations and excuses about God and the church and beliefs and they're all hypocrites and I don't have time and I don't feel like it. And it's not going to be any fun and laugh it off. But somewhere underneath that, those veneer of excuses is a heart that is very afraid to admit that it's broken and knows there's a lot of work to do. Now, God doesn't abandon you in that work, and it's good work inside you when you admit to God that you are in need of Him, and you start to pick through those mistakes and to wear it. And I think that's an ongoing process for all people. And for those of us who have already embraced Jesus as Messiah... Let's face the pain. Let's, let's do what we need to do to get things right between others. Not just say, thank you, God, that you forgave me. Amen. And pretend like there's no ramifications for our decisions. And God's not going to overwhelm you with having to take care of it all in one day and fix all this. And, and sometimes the people that you've, you've hurt don't want to be fixed. Don't want you to talk to them. They've shut you off. And, and you, know, you can't control that, but you can leave the door open from your side. And just letting them know that the door is open, sometimes that alone is hard, but it's really important. But God will show you the one thing that he wants you to work on the most, how you can extend mercy to others and continually do so. And then lastly, the will of God is to offer mercy to people. The 14th verse says this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Let me repeat that 16th verse. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. You are forgiven. You are loved. You do matter. Stop performing. Stop trying to convince and talk God into something that He's already done for you and given to you. And, and face Him and know that you're loved there, brokenness and all. Pain and all, bad decisions and all. He sees every bit of it and he still loves you. That's pretty amazing. See the end of the eighth chapter for the depth of the love of God. 
And this is why this chapter is, is, so, is so right, because when, 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 we, when the love of God takes hold and, and roots, and we're never going to know the end of it, thankfully, we'll never know the whole depth of it, we keep learning. But when it's really taken root in our hearts, then the mercy of God gets bigger. The mercy of God for you and the mercy of God that you can and should be extending. So again, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And in the 17th and 18th verse, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens those he wants to harden. Now, th- this too could, we could spend a lot of time on this, this idea that Pharaoh, the one that resisted Moses' directive from God to let the people go, and then plagues came upon the people because of Pharaoh's hard heart, and that God somehow made his hard heart, is, that, that's kind of difficult, just like a few verses earlier when it said that God hated Esau. So, God is love, so how could he hate? So there, there's, there's ways of understanding that and, and, and describing that. But right here, the hard heart. So God's not going to harden your heart. Let's just say that. And, and what, if for that particular time and place, that's what needed to happen. So God did that in one man's heart to bring about the Passover and the Red Sea, and everything that followed in this nation of people. But it's not as if God one day is going to say, okay, Paul, I'm going to harden your heart so you do something stupid so I can show you how forgiving I am. No, that's not what it's about. So God's not going to harden my heart, but guess what? I can. You can. These verses, and I could add more, but Hebrews 3.15, Ephesians 4.18, Mark... 8.17, Proverbs 28.14. Each of them speak of this, this warning of hardening your heart. I'll just read one of them um, from Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14. <clears throat> Blessed is the one who always trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. You know, the fear of the Lord, a good fear. I, and again, I, I described that fear a moment ago. That fear of facing God is, is, is also facing yourself. That's a, that's a trembling thing. But hardening your heart is worse. The pain that we endure in life can harden our heart. The the pain that we've caused and, and our, our fear or our stubbornness not to get it right will harden our heart. The pain that's got thrust upon us by others when we don't learn to forgive or try to forgive, as hard as that is, a refusal to forgive hardens the heart. Pessimism hardens the heart. Sarcasm taken to an extreme level, hardens the heart. There's 
a multitude of ways in which the heart is hardened. And what does a hard heart do? Or perhaps a better question is what it doesn't do is extend love. It is unable to extend. If you take the heart itself is, is metaphorical. It's talking about using <clears throat> the word heart, which physically is an organ of, with which you cannot live without, that keeps the blood supply throughout your body functioning every second of every day. And if that heart stops, if something isn't done very quickly, you will die. If my heart begins to get filled up with cholesterol and starts to block the arteries, then my physical heart is hardening. And left untreated, I'm going to get very tired, uh, less energy, I'm going to get weak, I might have chest pains, I don't want to do much. Why is that? Because my physical heart is hardened and can't do what it's supposed to do, which means I can't do all the things I used to do and would like to do again because I've got to get this heart taken care of. And that is true spiritually. The hard heart can't function. You can't express the love and the joy and the peace that the fruit of the Spirit is and that God wants to bring out of you when your, heart, when your heart is hardened. So whatever the reason that your heart might be in that place, I pray for you today that you would face God and face yourself and begin that road back. Begin a road to reconciliation. Begin a road to forgiveness. Begin a road of extending mercy. Begin a road of change and transformation. Wherever God takes that, and He'll show you if you're open. So in closing, this verse that was quoted here in the ninth chapter of Romans, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Will. I will, I will. God's will is mercy. What is your willful response to that mercy? God's will is compassion. Is godly compassion evident in your life. Father, may your word go forth in our lives. The scriptures that we've looked at, may they continue to teach us and challenge us, encourage us to become a people of mercy. In your name, amen.